0: Our scripture reading today is found on the back of your worship folder. It is another parable of Jesus. It's one I don't think that we covered and we talked about parables, but it is uh, called in scripture uh, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. It reads as follows. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. He did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, and have borne, uh, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we now pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm wondering if we gave you the chance and ask you, what have you learned along the way in your life to this point? Now, in the last couple of weeks and months, I've celebrated some milestones in my life. I have been married to Nancy now for 50 years. We celebrated that July the 13th. And I'm sure that we could both talk about many lessons that we've learned in 50 years. A week or so ago, I celebrated my 70th birthday. And when you look back, you probably could say to yourself, what lessons have I learned along the way? I've been in the ministry now for about 48 of those years, hopefully someday, maybe even hit 50, and I could probably write a lot about lessons I've learned as well. I'm going to start today by just sharing a few lessons, though, that fit in with our text, things that I've learned along the way in my life. One of them is this, that you're always being compared with someone, so stop complaining about it. It's always going to happen. Another thing I've learned is that when you are compared with someone else, you'll end up looking better than some and worse than others because there's always someone above you on the ladder and there's also somebody who is below you. The other thing I've learned, this kind of as a pastor, is uh, we generally envy those who are closest to our level. For example, a pastor who has 40 or 50 people in worship uh, probably does not envy Rick Warren, who has 21,000 in his services on a Sunday morning, because clearly Rick Warren is in a totally different category, but it's very possible for a pastor with a church of 40 or 50 to envy the neighbor pastor down the road who has 150 and maybe gets a larger salary and has less work to do. Something else I've learned is that the most frustrating thing is to feel like you're being passed over for some positions while people you regard as less qualified are chosen over you. Or worse yet, you don't even get considered for some of these positions. Now, here's kind of the ironic part of all of this. If you could get to know the people you envy in life, you'd discover that they envy the people who are one rung ahead of them, too. So I just say, maybe we just need to learn to build a bridge and get over it. Quit our grumbling. Quit our complaining. Quit our judging. Now, what happens when you and I play this comparison game? Well, the answer is pretty simple. We lose our focus on our own ministry that God calls us to, and really, when you stop and think about it, when we grumble and complain, we are grumbling and complaining against the Lord. Now, grumbling is um, is a particularly dangerous sin for anyone who's somehow connected with the ministry of God, whether it be a pastor or whether it be people who belong to a, a separate church or people who, as they minister to people out in the community, as they're in uh, the workplace, as they're speaking to one another as fellow believers or whatnot. Now, the dictionary probably is a good thing for us to know what that word grumble actually means. Uh, these are the basic three definitions. To show one's unhappiness or critical attitude. Have you ever done that? Talked about your unhappiness, let's say with your pastor or with your church or with a fellow believer or your neighbor. Have you ever had a critical attitude towards those who don't sing as loud as you or who should probably be quiet? Hmm. To make complaining remarks or noises under one's breath. How many of you are good at muttering under your breath? or to murmur or mutter in discontent and complain sullenly. Well, I like that second definition, because I think we've all done that one. We kind of make side comments, complaining remarks, or kind of mutter under our breath. Uh, We smile when we hear about the success of someone close to us, and under our breath we are saying things that we wouldn't want anybody else to hear. Now, actually, the Bible has an awful lot to say about grumbling. You'd be surprised if you went to your your Bible, you had it on a computer, and you hung up the word grumble. It says an awful lot about it. I think most of you probably know the most preeminent example would be the children of Israel. I mean, in the wilderness, several million people constantly grumbled against Moses and against the Lord. I mean, think about it. They grumbled because they didn't have enough water. They grumbled because they didn't like it in the wilderness. They grumbled. It well, almost sounds like living in Mineral Wells. We don't have enough water, and we live out here in the wilderness. They grumbled because they thought Moses was a bad leader. They grumbled because they missed Egypt where they were slaves. That's hard to understand. They grumbled because they weren't in the Promised Land yet. They grumbled because they thought God was letting them down. Now you can learn a lot about grumbling in the Bible. I'm only going to give you two passages here on the screen. One of these from Exodus. So the people grumbled at Moses. Actually we had the old version of the Bible that says they murmured against him. They were speaking under their breath and probably not so much under their breath. Say, what are we going to drink? It's kind of like kids in the backseat of a car. Are we there yet? Exodus 16, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled. Uh, Chapter 17, but the the people thirsted for water and they grumbled. You brought us out here to kill us. Numbers chapter 14, all the sons of Israel grumbled again. You know, you brought us out here to die. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in the New Testament, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Or James chapter 5, 9, do not grumble, brothers, notice who he says, against One another Who's James talking about here? He's talking about the church He's talking about fellow believers He said don't grumble against one another So that you will not be judged Y'all know what a grumbler is? Don't look at the person next to you We'll leave that out Well, let me tell you how to spot a grumbler If you don't know whether this applies to you or not, let me narrow it down this morning. First of all, a grumbler is never satisfied with what they have. If it's money, they never have enough. If it's their house, it's never nice enough. If it's grades in school, even though they get an A, it's still a disappointment that they didn't get an A+. They are experts in criticism and probably have a Ph.D. in nitpicking. Nothing is ever really enough for a grumbler. The second one is they've always got an excuse. Ask him why he doesn't have a new car. That's something, this is something you try out with somebody. Ask him why they don't buy a new car and they'll say because the interest rates are too high. Cost too much money. Ask him again and he'll say well it does cost too much money. Ask him again and he says well new cars are basically a ripoff. Ask him why he doesn't just buy a used car and he says well you don't want to buy somebody else's problems. Ask him why he doesn't fix up the car he has and he says well he's not going to throw good money after bad. Nothing. Is ever good enough. He's always got an excuse. And third, he secretly or she secretly believes that they can never succeed in this life. The key word is secretly. Secretly. They may not even be aware that they've given up on life. But their grumbling gives them away. Down their heart, they somehow believe that the whole game of life is rigged. I mean, I've actually met people who said, I think God has it in for me or out for me. I mean, God never gives me a break. The cards are stacked against me. And and try as hard as I can, I'm always going to be doomed to failure. I think of two Facebook friends I have. Both approximately the same age. Both approximately in similar marital or coupling relationships, and both of them have the same identical job. One of them, life never works. It never works. Life is always getting you know, what? Well, I don't know why I didn't expect that, because everything is rotten for me. Everything is downhill. Everything is a criticism. Everything is this and this and the other person is Thank the Lord I'm alive today, thank God for this, what a wonderful job to have, and on and on and on. So they're just different kinds of people. Some people just don't believe they can ever succeed. In fact, uh, give them a glass of water and ask them, is this half full or half empty? And the grumbler will say, who cares, it's probably polluted anyway. <laughs> well, let's get into the grumbling farm workers. That brings us to the parable that Jesus tells here in Matthew chapter 20. He starts out by saying the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we study parables, you remember we talked about when you have the kingdom of heaven, you got to either talk about what the king is like, what the kingdom is like, or what the people who live in the kingdom are like. So we're going to learn a little bit about all of them. Since for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, in order to understand this story, you've got to know a few facts about the owner here. It's obvious that he owns a large estate. Now, don't think of hundreds of acres, but uh, think of something like the King Ranch in Texas. I mean, really big, where the roads just disappear in the distance. You don't know what's even back there anymore. Because he is such a big place, he needs a lot of workers. And harvest time has come, and now time is of the essence. He can't wait He needs help, and he needs help right now. And guess what? He's got the resources. He's got the cash on hand to hire a lot of workers. So the landowner has really two things in abundance. One, he's got plenty of work, and two, he's got plenty of money. Now, those are two key facts in this parable. Nothing else makes sense unless you can see and understand that he's got plenty of work, plenty of resources to pay rather well for the work that he needs to have done out in his vineyard. Now, in the days of Jesus, when Jesus told this, the marketplace, you would go to the central market in your local village, and this is where the unemployed people would gather. In some places here in America, they they probably still kind of do that in a local area, or they go to a local union hall or whatever. Uh, They go and they stand there, and they wait for somebody to come and offer them a job. So they were just kind of idle until someone came along who needed their services. Now, the men in this story really have nothing to do on their own. They have no job. They have no prospects of getting a job. Their outlook is, I guess you'd say, bleak until the owner, the landowner, comes along. So no job, no money, no hope, anything, absolutely anything that happens to them will be a blessing. So, that's the background, again, in this story. Big farm, big ranch, a great need, a wealthy landowner, and a whole lot of unemployed people. Now, as we study this, we really see that there are about five different kinds of men in this story, too. First of all, there are the guys who were hired at 6 a.m. That's when the work day would start. 6 p.m. would be when it would end. They were up early. They negotiated their wages. They were hired first. They contracted to, uh, do a day's work for a denarius, and that's all good because that was the normal wage of a day's work back in the first century. So, good money, fair money. Then you've got those who were hired at 9 a.m., about three hours later. These guys were ready, willing, and able. The landowner promised to pay them what is fair. All that's good. They are not promised a denarius for a day's work because the day is already partly gone. They're just asked to trust in the landowner's sense of fairness. Then you've got the workers that are hired at noon. I mean, they get the same deal as the nine o'clock workers. That's pretty good, too. Then there are the ones who are hired at three. They also get the same deal. Uh, Then there are the workers hired at five, which meant they would only work for one hour. Now, from the standpoint of the landowner, picture you're the landowner, this last group of guys uh, had kind of wasted their time. They had wasted their potential, but they're still hanging around. They still are ready to work, but they are not promised anything. They have no way of knowing what the landowner is going to do at the end of the day. Now, if you want to plug in two churchy words here, Grace gave them the job, and faith caused them to take it. You might lock that in the back of your mind. Grace gave them the job, and faith caused them to take it. Now, before we go any further, we can say this much again about the landowner. had lots of work, lots of money, and obviously had lots of compassion. He cared about the workers in his community. He could have ignored these men he found later. He could have said, what a bunch of lazy bums, just sitting around here all day, sitting in the corner in the shade, smoking a cigarette or whatever, and drinking beer. Didn't say that. Uh, He hired them as an act of pure grace. Did not need to do it, but did it. Now, when the day's labor is done, the time comes to pay off the workers. You know, some of you, like me, you know, I grew up in a farming community. You know, uh, one of the jobs I used to get when I was in high school, myself and three friends, we'd pick up corn. After the corn picker had gone through the fields, it's always leaves some down there. And so we'd have a wagon and a tractor, and we'd just walk the rows and kick around looking for those loose ears of corn. The farmer never told us what he was going to pay for us, but we always knew that we were guaranteed a good farm meal at lunch. But we'd be out there from about 7 in the morning to about 3 in the afternoon. And at the end of the day, uh, he'd just start he'd hand us money. And whatever we got, we were just happy as clams at high tide. It was wonderful. Now, but something very unusual happens, if you recall, in verse 8. When evening came, verse 8 says, The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages. But did you notice he said, Beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. Now, this is very unusual if you study the culture it's very unusual, but it's not necessarily unheard of. Uh, maybe he wanted to use his pocket change first and then just hold the big bills off till the end. We really don't know. But the landowner, because Jesus is telling this story, remember, has something more in mind. He wants to teach us something in this story. He pays the last group first in order to reveal the hidden motives Of those who were hired earlier in the day. See, only the ones who were hired first had a contract, right? The others worked by faith. The landowner really wanted the first group to see how generous he can still be to those who trust him. Even without a written agreement. But then comes a little kicker here in this story. Again at verse 9. When those hired about the 11th hour, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, each of them received a Denarius. Well, wow, that's an incredible wage. You get a whole day's pay for one hour of work. I, that's pretty good. I, I, you know, I, I'm sure that when this happened, the guys who were hired at six a.m. were going, "Whoa, baby! <laughs> if he's paying a denarius for one hour's worth of work, what are we going to get?" Now, by that standard, they expected. 12 denarius. They expected 12 days pay for one day's work. But guess what? They had agreed to what? Work all day for one denarius, and that's exactly what they got paid. Why? Because a deal is a deal is a deal. But when you look in this story again, here's the real shocker. Those who worked all day received the same as those who only worked one hour. In verse 10, now when those first hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Now, I, I want you to get yourself into this story, because you really got to somehow get yourself into the flow of How would you feel about that if you had been the 6 a.m. worker? I have a sneaking feeling you'd feel about the same way they did. Uh, you know, what did they do? They began to grumble. Complain, moan, throw themselves a personal pity party. I mean, you work hard. You sacrifice to get the job done. You keep your part of the bargain. And some bum walks in at the last minute and he gets just as much money as you do. Verse 12. These last worked only one hour, they said. And you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and and the scorching heat. Now, I know they're grumbling, but folks, be honest. You would, too. So would I. Now, what's really at the heart of their complaint? What are they really complaining about here? Now, fundamentally, it's in this little phrase, you have made them equal to us. You have made them equal to us. See, if you just count hours work, they are not equal. I mean, 12 hours of work and one hour of work, that's not equal. It's not that they minded the latecomers getting paid or that they minded that these latecomers actually got a denarius. Even that would be okay. But, but verse 10 says they thought they would receive more. And that's why they grumbled. So I, was, I thought about using a slightly different outline this morning because what you have here are, Four words I thought of. it. That's observation, expectation, consternation, and detonation. That's what happened here. The observation was they saw the latecomers being paid. Their expectation would be what? That they were going to get paid more. Their consternation was they couldn't believe what happened. And the detonation came when they blew up. They blew up when they found out everybody was being paid the same. Now, Again, when you think about it, humanly speaking, their complaint sounds reasonable. But it's based on a standard of human comparison. Ultimately, they were not complaining against the other workers, were they? I mean, their big beef was with the landowner, even though he was the guy who hired them and had made the deal with them. See, without them, he would have never had a job. They would have never had a job at all. And for the groups hired at nine and noon and three, he never promised to pay them more or less than anyone else. He simply promised them to give them, what, a fair wage, which he did. Now, the grumbling reflects badly on character. On the one level, it's kind of hard not to feel sympathy for these guys. In fact, I bet if I remember hearing this story the first time when I was in grade school, I would have thought, those guys that worked all day really got gypped. I wouldn't work for no farmer who did that to me. See, it happened to all of us. I bet somewhere along the lines it happened to all of us. We work and somebody else gets the credit. Or we work just as hard and they get more credit. Or we work much, much harder and they get equal credit. I mean, life is just that way. And You might find yourself secretly cheering for these workers and say those six a.m. workers ought to form a union and get a fair wage. But I want you to know something, friends. That's exactly why Jesus told the story. And that's because he knew he knew instinctively that you and I would root for the wrong side. See, so what's the root cause of of grumbling? It's envy. We root for the wrong side because we think we are like the early group that started early and worked all day long. In our eyes, we work so hard and receive so little in return, while others do so little and receive so much. So we go out from here brimming with confidence, ready to go to work with our motives as pure as we can make them. We work hard, we sweat, we toil all day, we bear the burden, we try to do our best, and just when the road gets bumpy, somebody else comes along, passes us doing 95 miles an hour, and leave us eating their dust. And so we grumble. I think back in my ministry, doing two funerals in the same week. Two men in their 70s. One who had been a lifelong member Of that church. Served in a variety of offices in that church. Elder, church council, Sunday school teacher. Sat in the same pew Sunday after Sunday, probably a fairly generous giver. Died. The other man was somewhat well known in the community as being kind of a drunk and kind of a bum and a cheat. Not the best of guys, but late in life came to know Jesus as the Savior and came to church. Both men died approximately the same week. I did both funerals, one on one day, of the man who'd been a member for years, and one for the man who'd only been there for a short time the next day. And about the day after that, the wife of the first man was in my office, and she was irate. How dare you do a funeral in the same manner for that man when my husband had been here for years. Now, how would you respond to that one? We grumbled. We complained. But let me say something very crucial. At that point, our problem is not with a fellow worker. Our problem is really not with the pastor. Our problem is with the boss. Our problem is with God. Are you envious, the owner said, because I'm generous? See, when you boil it down, grumble, grumbling is merely a symptom. The deeper problem here is envy. But underneath this level of envy is an even deeper issue, and that's because we have a problem with God because we think he was better to someone else than he was to us. See, in the final analysis, I believe that Jesus told the story to teach us something about God. See, we can get this general idea that we are these 6 a.m. laborers. We showed up early. We worked hard all day. We bore the burdens, while others just stood idly around to the last moment and then just kind of worked only for an hour. But I don't think that's the way God sees it at all. God's view is like that we are all like those guys who are idle all day until 5 o'clock in the afternoon and at the last second found work to do. And for those men, their reward is all out of proportion for their work. But grumbling comes from two things. First, we overestimate our importance. And second, we underestimate the grace of God. See, the parable is not just teaching us about our final rewards. It's also probing at the level of our motives. I mean, why are we doing what we do? I mean, if it's a straight reward you want, fine, you're going to get it. God's never going to cheat you. But you'll probably end up going to heaven grumbling all the way. Always checking to see how you compare with other people. But if you decide to do your work, whatever God's called you to do, and just do it for God's sake and for the Lord's sake alone, you're never going to be disappointed. Now, what's the cure for a grumbling heart? Let me give you a few things in closing. One of these is just to thank God for the blessings you've already experienced. I've been a believer my whole life. You know, born into a family raised by godly grandparents, baptized at a young age, given a Christian day school, Christian high school, Christian college, education, seminary, been in the ministry for two-thirds of my life. I think the longer I serve the Lord in whatever calling he gives me, whether it's a pastor or a teacher or working in a prison or working with India, Or whatever, I think the more critical that that becomes, that you thank God for the blessings you've already experienced. See, before you ever grumble again, friends, before you grumble again today, thank God first for your blessings. And I I have a sneaking feeling if you thank God first for your blessings, you're not going to really think too much about grumbles. See, the men who worked all day and then felt cheated forgot that the owner, if the owner had not come along, they wouldn't have had a job at all. I mean, how much better to say, thank you, God, for the things you've already given me? Second thing is, don't judge yourself by the way God treats somebody else. I think that's very important, too. I mean, look at the, looking at other people always gets us in trouble. Uh, you yeah, know, even little things. I mean, you, you can, You could buy a brand new car and be driving it down the road and see a bigger, fancier car and go, oh, nuts. It's just the way it works. But see, God is not obligated to treat everybody alike. Did you know that? I've never found that in the Bible, that God has promised to treat everybody the same. I mean, He's not bound by our standards. If He chooses to bless someone more obviously than it appears that He's blessed you, that's His business. Back up and do number one. Thank Him for how He has blessed you. I mean, a lot of people struggle with this. Because they think that because God did something for a friend or a neighbor or a loved one, then God must be bound to do that also for them. But I don't believe it works that way. I mean, God can deliver your neighbor from cancer and you may die of cancer. Or vice versa. See, envying your neighbor because he has something you don't have is a waste of time because God treats us as individuals, not as groups. The truth is he might do for you exactly what he's done for someone else, or he might do more than he did for someone else, or he might do less than something else, or he may do something completely different for you than what you were expecting. He's God. God Deals with us in the way that he chooses. But don't forget that God is a loving God. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He's a forgiving God. The third thing is remember that God re- rewards faithfulness, not production. I and mean, I'm not going to get to heaven someday and God say, well, how many years did you serve in the ministry? And I say 50. He goes, oh, 50. That's pretty good. Come on in. And you look at the pastor behind me and he says, I only serve for four. Oh, sorry. You don't get in. I mean, God's not going to do that. Or, I I, I was the head elder for 75 years at my local church. That's not how you get in. See, we live in a world that kind of puts a premium on production. I mean, what's the bottom line? How many new calls did you make today? How many books have you read? Uh, How many degrees do you have? And sometimes it's kind of easy to bring that into the church. We tend to reduce the Christian life to a, a mechanical process, like, have you prayed enough? I mean, have you done enough Bible study? Have you... Have you, you know, like doing a lot of work in the church equals a certain reward. That's very production oriented. And that's the way the world looks at it. You either produce or you're fired. But God's point of view is really kind of different. The world looks at production. What does the Lord look at? He inspects our motive. The world says, what did you do? I think God says, why did you do it? The world says, what's the bottom line? God says, were you doing this for me? The world says, show me your stuff. God says, show me your heart. So here's the truth. You can't tell by looking at other people where they stand with the Lord. And guess what? You can't really tell by looking at other people where you stand with the Lord. See, it's a wonderful antidote to grumbling to think of it this way. God is just. No one will ever be underpaid in his kingdom. And that God is generous. Everyone is going to be surprised. If you want justice, you can have it. You can grumble all the way. But if you want the grace of God, you're going to have it. And you're going to remember that perhaps you were idle before God ever called you out of the marketplace and brought you into his kingdom to work. I think there's some really good news in this parable. I mean, the master is always coming to the marketplace and he's always looking for laborers. And there's plenty of work. We just had our annual Christ for India banquet. And, you know, we're training thousands for Christ for India to reach billions of people. There's always a need for more laborers in the vineyard. There's plenty of work, actually. You know what the Bible says? The harvest is ready, but there are not enough workers who step forward and said, Lord, I'd be happy to work in the harvest. More than enough to go around, and he's always looking for volunteers. And guess what? You really don't need to worry about the salary. No one has ever been laid off in God's kingdom. No one has ever been disappointed by being a part of God's kingdom. I just wonder what opportunity God has given you lately. Or are you just still kind of milling around the marketplace? I mean, as Jesus called you into his vineyard in some way... To share him with someone else. Now, too often we kind of gather together in our holy little huddles that are called churches. And we mutually encourage one another. That's okay. That's good. But do we actually go out into the marketplace and talk to other people and tell them about Jesus? See, one thing ought to occupy our mind as workers in his kingdom And that is to do the job that God has called us to do with the power that he also gives us. And to be faithful with it, and guess what? Far beyond that comes our reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you would actually include us in your kingdom. We thank you and praise you that you have called us to be a part of your work. When you told us to go into the world to make disciples, to share what the apostles taught, to baptize people, to bring them into the kingdom. Help us not to sit back and grumble and complain about where you place us in the kingdom or compare ourselves with others, but instead just to join hands with the people that you've called and work for a way so that more and more people can come to know you. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.